I Can't Do That Yet is the title of a kid's book about a little girl named Enna and her dad and their journey through trying to read at bedtime. Every night her dad sits down with her in bed and they read this book. And every night her dad asks Enna, his daughter, to read a page out of the book. And every night that Enna gets asked that question, she says, I can't do that. I don't know how many times I've heard that statement from my own kids. I can't do that. But one night, as they were reading this book, she falls asleep and she has this dream where she encounters this woman who seems very familiar to her, but nonetheless a stranger. And so this woman begins to talk to her and show her what she does with her day. She does things like run a company, manage people and teams, uh, host meetings, and yes, reads emails. Anna is so impressed with this woman, but still wondering, who the heck is she? And so she, she gets the, the courage to go, hey, what's your name? And maybe the most surprising twist of the entire book is that she says, my name's Anna. I'm you. I mean, I'm an older version of you, but I'm you. Which confuses young Anna and intrigues are all the same. So they go on to have a conversation about how this is possible and wrestle with Anna's, young Anna's insecurities. And there's this beautiful moment when older Anna says to younger Anna that the reason she isn't able to do these things is because she hasn't had enough time in her life yet. And she hasn't had enough help to learn these things yet. So Anna wakes up, younger Anna wakes up, and she, she goes running to her dad, tells her about her dream, and the book gets pulled out, and dad asks if she'd be willing to read. And a surprise to her dad, she says, yes. But she realizes she still can't read, and in the conversation between her and her dad, her dad goes to comfort her, and she says, that's all right, dad. I know I can't do it. I can't do that yet. The whole idea is that at some point, Anna has learned that she can't do it yet, but someday, someday she will. And Anna's response reminds me of one of our uh, staff members here 
the great Paul Scribbick. And every time, every time I'm in a, in a jam and he has to come help me out uh, with computer stuff or printer or anything else tech-related, or when we're just having conversation about life, we're just having conversation about life and, um, and maybe I'm having a moment of discouragement and I'm, I'm having uh, doubts, maybe even about something I should be stepping into that the Lord has talked to me about. Paul never fails with this one phrase. I think, I'm pretty sure everybody on staff already knows what it is, but it's all by grace. All by grace. And in the Christian life, I think many of us feel like Enna, and when we hear a call to follow God in an area of our life, we respond with, uh, I can't do that. And this morning, we're going to explore how we can go from, I can't do that, and this is going to sound a little weird, we can do it. Thought I was going to say the title of the book, but I, I didn't. Because we're going in a little different direction than Enna. And, and that is, we've been in this series called A Thousand Names. We're on to the third name that uh, God is given, and it's this. God is sanctifier. Or known in Hebrew as Jehovah, uh, I'm going to try this, Jehovah Mkadesh. And what that means is God is sanctifier. Big surprise, I know. But God is sanctifier. What does that mean? Well, maybe if we know what sanctified means, we can figure out what sanctifier means. And so sanctified is simply this, to be set apart or made separate from profane things, to be dedicated to God. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we become missionaries or pastors if we decide to step into sanctification? Nope. What it really means is this, for everybody, me included, that uh, we allow God we allow God to be personal and intimately involved at every level of our lives. So that's internally, so the emotional, mental, and spiritual. Uh, that's work. If you go to work, have a job. That's, um, that's school. Even though school is ending, I understand that. But for those who go to school, go to school. Uh, grocery shopping, didn't see that one coming. Grocery shopping, cleaning house, doing chores, my favorite, not really. Uh, and, and or a list of other things like this. How about relationships? Relationships with money, relationships with food, stuff, entertainment, or the crescendo people. Every part of our lives. Paul, not our staff member Paul, but the apostle or St. Paul, however you know him, who wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament, 
writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that transformational work of our sanctifier, aka God, is our spiritual act of worship. A.B. Simpson um, is seen as the beginner or founder of our denomination, Christian Missionary Alliance, said about sanctification, holiness of heart and life. This is not the perfection of the human nature, but the holiness of the divine nature dwelling within. And as a follower of Jesus, God's dream and direction for you in me, is to become more like the original design for humans. And that's it. God's desire for you is to be whole, holy, and complete, not lacking anything. Jehovah M'Kadesh is God restoring us back to our original condition, our original place, and our original purpose in this life. And God is the one doing this, sanctifying work. Not Chris, not Karen, or not fill in your name. It's God's work. And this is where I think we get stuck as Christians. Sometimes, and sometimes for years is that we assume this is all on us. And when we don't know what to do or where to go to be holy, we just get stuck. We stop. Jesus assumes our journey back to wholeness and a life in beautiful communion with God is actually only possible, at least now, by God. John 17, verse 17, and verse 19, we'll look at this here in a sec, comes from a prayer that Jesus is giving, a conversation he's having with God the Father. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 19, just a couple sentences later in his prayer, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That word consecrate is actually the word sanctify. Sanctified, technically. So he says, and for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That's a lot of work God's doing on our behalf. And St. Paul actually understood this because he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, uh, to his good pleasure, purpose. God is not asking anything of us that he is not planning on doing himself. It's God who's rolling up his sleeves 
getting ready to do the hard work, the dirty work, in and through us. God has created you and me for life together, and he has created a covenant, this beautiful, beautiful covenant, to make sure that that happens. This covenant is a promise. It's like a transaction, uh, a contract between people. It's much better than a contract, but it's always based on uh, the person who, there's always a person who's investing more, and it's always based on what they're able to offer that is greater than the other person. And in this case, God's that person. God can offer, God can offer so much more than we can, and he knows it. And so he's willing to go into contract, covenant with us, this beautiful thing of making a promise and commitment to us that, hey, I created you to be whole, and maybe, not maybe, because it isn't a maybe, but maybe you screwed things up. Actually, you did. We've sinned, we've walked away, sometimes we've been defiant. God says, in spite of all of that, I intended you to be whole, so I'm going to make sure you become whole. So then he makes sure that that covenant is fulfilled. So how does he do this? Um, I could sit here and talk for the next 20 minutes But I thought I'd lean on um, some people that we've gotten used to learning from. The Bible Project crew, they put a fantastic video together talking about, uh, and it's really creative, talking about and explaining the way God has done this as Sanctifier. So let's take a few minutes and watch this video. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, This idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but 
Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. So, if our transformation by God, being, which is being more whole, satisfied, holy, and more like Jesus, is all dependent on God, where does that leave us? Leave us in this whole process of sanctification. And it's, it's really simple but maybe, maybe I dare I say really profound that it's being as close to and familiar with God as possible. James 5.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's this promise that if we at the very least acknowledge God's presence and maybe at the most step towards God somehow in our life, when interests, it could look like, I don't know, showing up on a Sunday morning, tuning in online. If you have a Bible, opening it and actually reading and discovering the person that that Bible and book is about Jehovah, God himself, then God promises he'll come close. He'll start making himself known. And as we're already learning from Jehovah Kadesh, God is our sanctifier, that he'll do way more than just show up in our lives. So there's a couple places that uh, give you his homework uh, that you can look up later. Uh, a couple references and a couple things that might help you in terms of this reference about how do we draw close to God? What's our role in our lives? What are the things that God has spoken into us about? It says, yeah, just do this thing. And the first one is this, submit to God. James 5, 7 literally says, submit to God. And, and then he goes on to say, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But very obviously, he just says, start there. That may mean surrendering bad habits, um, inaccurate beliefs about God, about his people, about the world and how it actually works according to God's perspective, submitting to God may, look, may, may actually sound like and look like you talking to him. Carving out five minutes, dare I say 10 or 15 minutes, to get familiar with him, to know him, and to be willing to hear him out and the things that he tells you. 
Which brings us to the next one. Listen and obey the Holy Spirit. You can find this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And there's a huge conversation that goes on in that letter about what this means and how it looks. So do some homework on that. It's more than what we'll be able to cover this morning. But it's really interesting that as that conversation goes on, the next thing on the list shows up. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, stay humble. I think that's really interesting, and I think this is really important for us as Christians, especially if we have had a relationship with Jesus for any length of time. I have, over the years, found this in myself and a lot of people that, um, that I've had fellowship with and hung out with, and it's this. That over time, the temptation shows up to think that we're actually doing more than we, we really are in our spiritual lives. That we actually, sometimes, we believe the lie that we're the sanctifier, not God. And so we're like, hey, I just encouraged somebody with some scripture. Hey, look at me. That's pretty awesome. I did great. Or the talents we've been given, uh, whether it's an instrument or singing or being able to publicly speak, stand up here and go, man, I killed it today. I totally crushed it. This was awesome. I, I'm amazing. And the reality is you were born with these things. And God has maneuvered and orchestrated things in your life that has made that entirely possible for you to be educated, to learn, to grow in those talents and skills that he's given you. So to, for us to stand here, to stand here and, or to sit in conversation with somebody and brag about our holiness and our, our, our ability to, to live godly just doesn't, seem to fit. Stay humble. He says, hey, the temptation's coming. That you think after a while with me and some things go really well and we have some success together, you're going to go, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. I got this. And he says, no, 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 no. Humble yourself before God. Stay in that space and we'll do more together. And one of the ways he talks about us doing that is in chapter 6, the first 10 verses of that chapter, get input from others. So it actually starts out really abrupt and says that sometimes you need the input from others because you're sinning. Maybe you've gotten prideful and aren't being humble anymore. Maybe Maybe there's just been a perpetual temptation that has latched onto you or an old habit that still hasn't bro been broken off by the Lord yet and you haven't been sanctified in that area of your life yet. And another brother or sister in Christ sees you and sees that sin and the Lord gives them the words to call you out lovingly, gently, and with truth. 
And there's a whole list of how that, how that conversation happens, what kind of spirit a person should approach you or someone else in that situation, what kind of spirit they should have. But he says, get input from others and receive it because that's part of the sanctification process. And I don't think I have to say this, but I'm going to. Sanctification is uncomfortable. This process of becoming more whole, more holy, and back to our original purpose and place, there's nothing easy or feel good about most of it. So if you signed up for Christianity and you thought that this was going to be all happy and rainbows, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but those days are over. <laughs> but it's beautiful, and it's, it, there's, it's peaceful, and there's kindness and gentleness on a level you have never experienced before. So it's worth it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about this uncomfortable process, and that's actually not just uncomfortable for us, but it's also uncomfortable for God. And, and in First Corin uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So bottom line, God wants us, God, sorry, God wants to reconcile you. He, reconciliation is this, to restore friendly relations or friendly compatibility between people. And that's what God is doing and has done through Jesus, Jesus', Jesus life here as he was teaching and making people aware of the kingdom of God and of the presence of God around them. He was trying to reconcile them bring friendly relations back to people. And God wants to redeem you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you've been bought with a price. And it goes on to say, now be the temple of God that you've been designed to be. To redeem means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for a payment. And that's the part where Jesus died on the cross, right? Where he shed his blood as an act of love and sacrifice and purpose, like Kurt talked about during communion, as an act of commitment to us so that we could once again be consecrated. We could be dedicated back to God. We could, we could be guaranteed this friendly relationship with the living God. And then there's Philippians 1.6. God wants to restore you to repair and or renovate back to a former condition, place, or position. 
And we're talking all the way back to what we said at the beginning, the original human design. So, what does a sanctified person look like and sound like? Well, that is way too long of a list for us to cover this morning. So, we're just going to snapshot this a little bit and give you a, a few things here. And, it, and they are, let's say, you before Christ, or even since, speak harsh words. Well, the sanctified you starts to sound like a gentler, kinder, kinder you with a gentler, kinder response. Proverbs 15.1 talks about that. A little bit of homework for you to check that out. Actually, interesting fact, a ton of Proverbs 15, that whole chapter is on your words and how to use them. So, so dive in, have some fun with that. How about this? Selfish or egocentric. And instead, God calls us in James 4, verses 1 through 4, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which are some of my favorite verses, not because they make me feel good, but because they remind me of my, the sanctification that is happening in my life. But they tell us to think about other people, to make it our goal, our purpose, our ambition in life, to think about others. And be bold enough to think about others before ourselves. And then there's lying. That's a fun one. And he says, a sanctified person is going to look like they speak the truth. Kind of obvious. Ephesians 4.25 says, put off falsehood and go ahead and speak the truth. Leave it, leave it where it's at. Move on to something new. And then last but not least, gossip. One of, the, one of the words that God gives us about a sanctified or transformed person in the area of gossip is from Ephesians 4.29. says, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only a word that builds people up and encourages those that are listening. So build others up instead of talking behind their backs. And remember, in all of this, like the great Paul Scribic says, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. You aren't going to be able to check this list off like a like it's a, it's, a, it's a holy spreadsheet and that, that if you do these things, then God is pleased with you. Now remember, God will make you pleasing to himself as you let him into your life, as you just give him space to, and time to do the work he wants to do. That's why the Holy Spirit is there inside each one of us who walk with Jesus. So I thought about doing this this morning, and it was to close with a blessing. So I want to just read this blessing to you and over you this morning as a type of prayer. 
may you go in the grace of God. Believing that God is good and faithful to finish what he has started in you. And may you trust that every change that God makes is for your good and God's glory. That's my prayer for all of us. May you receive that this morning and go in God's grace. And we'll see you next week.